0: Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Beep. Beep. Welcome back, Team Nerds. It is Dan Ambinder here. Thanks for joining us for the spectacular Nerds Cardio Obstetrics Cruise. We've made several key stops along this comprehensive curricular journey. At our last stop in episode 114, we learned all about pregnancy and coronary artery disease from Dr. Melissa Wood. Now, join us for our next port of call at Cooper University Medical School to learn about pregnancy and arrhythmia from Dr. Andrea Russo. For this discussion, we had to pick up EP-bound Dr. Kelly Arps along the way. To help us navigate these amazing waters, we thank you for subscribing to and supporting the Cardio Nerds. This podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. Dr. Russo's disclosures are listed in the episode description and do not directly pertain to the content of this episode. Otherwise, the remaining speakers have no relevant disclosures and there is no commercial or in kind support for this activity. Be sure to claim free CME credit using the link in the episode description. Finally, Stay tuned for a special message about cardio obstetrics and women's art at the end of this episode.
1: Welcome, cardio nerds, to another great episode for the Cardio Obstetrics series. Today, we'll be talking about the always intimidating arrhythmias in pregnancy. To guide us, we have our fit lead, Dr. Kelly Arps. Kelly is a clinical cardiology fellow at Duke University. She completed medical school at Emory University and residency at Johns Hopkins Hospital. She's planning to pursue a career in cardiac electrophysiology with particular interest in arrhythmia management in patients with heart failure and infiltrative cardiomyopathies. Welcome, Kelly.
2: Thanks so much, Natalie. We are incredibly lucky to hear today from Dr. Andrea Russo. Dr. Russo is professor of medicine at Cooper Medical School of Rowan University, where she is also director of the Clinical Cardiac Electrophysiology Fellowship Program, as well as director of electrophysiology and arrhythmia services at Cooper University Hospital and director of research at Cooper Heart Institute. She is the immediate past president of the Heart Rhythm Society. She's had numerous leadership positions in HRS, the American College of Cardiology, American Heart Association, American Board of Internal Medicine, National Quality Forum, and the American Board of Medical Specialties. Dr. Russo is currently serving as a member of the ACC Cardiovascular Disease and Women Committee and the ABIM Cardiovascular Board. She's written extensively in the field of electrophysiology with a focus on sex differences in arrhythmias, ICDs, and subcutaneous cardiac devices, atrial fibrillation, digital health, and performance improvement activities. She's been the steering committee for trials, including Untouched and in the Apple Heart Study, and contributed to multiple guideline and consensus statements, including as first author of the 2013 Multi-Society Appropriate Use Criteria for Implantable Cardioverter Defibrillators and Cardiac Resynchronization Therapy, and a senior author of the ACC AHA Guidance for Cardiac Electrophysiology During the COVID-19 Pandemic. In addition to her academic achievements, Dr. Russo has been recognized many times as a top doctor in Philadelphia and Southern New Jersey. It's an honor to speak with her today. So Dr. Russo, before we get started, can you tell us a bit about how you became interested in cardio obstetrics and sex differences in arrhythmia care?
3: Thank you so much for inviting me to this terrific podcast. And it's really an honor to be here and such a great idea for doing this. So, you know, I first became interested in cardio obstetrics during my fellowship training. We had a lot of consults from maternal fetal medicine, and they always seem to be a lot of, you know, challenges and we can make a big difference and really help women who during pregnancy who are having some difficulties. And then as an early faculty member in electrophysiology, I I fell into this area of sex difference just because i think there weren't a lot of women in our field and it was assumed that i should know something about this and i was one of the few at that time so you know after giving or being asked to actually give my first talk on sex differences in arrhythmias i just completely got hooked on the topic and it was clear you know first of all how important it is to understand these types of differences so we can deliver the best care to our patients and there may also be some differences in care or disparities in care and and these may exist and we want to assure that women are getting really the best care that they need.
1: Great. Thank you so much. So let's start with the basics. To understand the abnormal, we first need to wrap our minds around the normal. So Dr. Russo, are there any normal electrical changes to expect with pregnancy?
3: Yeah. So as you know, during pregnancy, there are a lot of physiologic changes, including this increase in intravascular volume that distends your cardiac chambers and can increase cardiac output significantly. In addition to this there's definitely an increase in resting heart rate in women during pregnancy and this heart rate can continue to increase throughout pregnancy and peaks you know at the third trimester so you can have a resting heart rate that's 10 or 15 beats per minute or at least faster than your baseline heart rate on your ECG this increased catecholamine state can result in a shortening of the PR interval and then you can even see some axis changes on your EKG as pregnancy progresses. The diaphragm elevates in from the uterus and you can get an upward and leftward shift on the axis on your EKG. You can get some nonspecific T-wave changes. And most notable, though, are the increase in heart rates that we see during pregnancy. Resting heart rates are faster and particularly as you get later in pregnancy.
2: Great. Thank you. Yeah, I can certainly imagine how the electrical shifts and the hormonal shifts could really exacerbate a patient with a predisposition to arrhythmias. We have some cases now. I'd love for you to join us in CardioNerd's EP Clinic, where our first patient is a 22-year-old woman who's previously been diagnosed with AVNRT on a Holter monitor. She has no structural heart disease. She's not pregnant currently, but is hoping to become pregnant next year. What recommendations do you make for patients who have known supraventricular tachycardias who come in for preconception counseling?
3: You did point out, and I think that was actually a good point you made before I addressed that particular case, is that women who have pre-existing arrhythmias may have an increase in arrhythmias during pregnancy, and we clearly see that. And then on top of that, we actually are often consulted for women who have symptoms during pregnancy and are diagnosed with arrhythmias during pregnancy that may be new. Or sometimes this is the time when young women are starting to seek medical attention for pregnancy, so someone's listening to them and hearing about their symptoms before pregnancy. So you could see both, an increase in pre-existing arrhythmias as well as new onset arrhythmias that are just diagnosed. But to get back to your important case, and this is a common situation where we see, you know, someone who's had prior SVT, in this case, AV node reentry, some women who have pre-existing arrhythmias have been thinking about non-pharmacologic options for long-term therapy to reduce arrhythmia symptoms and reduce the frequency of SVT. So we know that for SVT, catheter ablation has a high success rate, low recurrence rate. It's a class one recommendation in in our practice guidelines, but it's really a personal decision. If someone wants to have a non-pharmacologic approach, you know, for treatment, if they're thinking of waiting a year or two or doing it now, it may be a reason to consider doing it now. But It's really a personal choice. If the woman really elects to have continued medical therapy, she just needs to be aware that she may have increased arrhythmias, that increased intravascular volume, increased stretch on the atria in the chambers of the heart can increase the number of extra beats that can trigger arrhythmias. So it's a personal decision, but they need to be aware that you can have more arrhythmias during pregnancy. But we do have effective treatment and beta blockers such as metoprolol are often very effective in treating SVT, but she may require dose adjustments or additional therapy during pregnancy.
4: Thank you, Dr. Russo. So so, yes, there are several hemodynamic and electrical changes are associated with pregnancy. And I appreciate you going over them because we've talked a lot about the hemodynamic changes, but not necessarily like the conductance changes in pregnancy. And so these changes during pregnancy can exacerbate pre-existing or pre-diagnosed arrhythmia conditions. It can be a time for a diagnosis of new arrhythmia conditions. You know, talking about things like AVNRT, I don't think of that as causing hemodynamic issues unless somebody has a structural vulnerability or something along those lines. But are there primary electrical conditions that might confer particularly high risk to the mother or the baby during pregnancy and especially during delivery?
3: Yeah, that's a great question. So there are certainly underlying structural heart disease problems that could make women tolerate arrhythmias less well. But one of the more concerning situations is ventricular arrhythmias during pregnancy associated with structural heart disease, particularly if they develop a peripartum cardiomyopathy, they can have increased risk of adverse outcomes and ventricular tachycardia that would be likely to require therapy. And if they develop it during pregnancy and very rarely, again, we don't see it too often, but they can have a sustained ventricular tachycardia or even, ventricular fibrillation, which could be serious and life-threatening. And in rare situations, they may require, you know, therapy, even ICD therapy. Again, that's very uncommon you know, to develop that during pregnancy. There are women, however, who have pre-existing underlying structural heart disease and may even have devices implanted before pregnancy. But sustained ventricular arrhythmias, particularly if very rapid, can lead to hypotension, which could you know, have adverse effects on perfusion and it could have adverse effects on both the mother and the fetus if the episodes are prolonged. You know, the other syndromes I think we see probably a little more commonly are patients with long QT syndrome, congenital long QT syndrome, you know, their increased risk of arrhythmias maybe not such a problem during pregnancy, but we sometimes forget that even in the period immediately after pregnancy, there may be an increase in risk. And so we have to consider those kind of syndromes and therapies before the patient gets pregnant or how to deal with it, you know, during pregnancy.
4: Yeah, that was great. So there are arrhythmias that are intrinsically malignant, right? Especially ventricular arrhythmias and, and women are certainly more susceptible during pregnancy. And then there are the arrhythmias you mentioned earlier that usually are benign, but with the hemodynamic stress of pregnancy and a structural hit. So it's almost like three hits, right? You've got the arrhythmia that's normally benign. You've got the hemodynamic stressors of pregnancy and you've got the structural hit. When you were talking about that, I remembered my first encounter with arrhythmia in pregnancy was as a first year fellow when I was in our inpatient cardiology imaging service and it was a patient who was pregnant in her second trimester at the time. She had a history of Schoen's complex, which you know had several surgical corrections, including a mechanical mitral prosthesis with some degree of prosthetic mitral valve stenosis. And so pre-pregnancy, she was asymptomatic. With pregnancy, she was beginning to become symptomatic, but she was acutely admitted because she went into atrial flutter with RVR. And so it was like almost like sudden hemodynamic collapse because she had the three hits the pregnancy, the prosthetic mitral stenosis, which wasn't too bad before pregnancy, and then the flutter at RVR. Thankfully, she did very well you know, with the management she received, but it, it really kind of goes to show you that these hits add up one by one.
3: Exactly. That's a complex patient.
1: So Dr. Russo, you mentioned long QT syndrome. How does your preconception counseling differ for patients with inherited arrhythmias, such as long QT or WPW or Brugada? Well,
3: some arrhythmia syndromes, are primary arrhythmia syndromes can be inherited, as you pointed out, and we certainly should have genetic counseling and discussions before pregnancy. So there are a lot of factors that need to be considered, including the frequency and the severity of severe outcomes, as well as what kind of available therapies we have for the mother, but also for the fetus, right? So we think of increased risk for WPW and offspring, and at least I think of this as although you can have a severe and life-threatening form, that's not as frequent and Occurrence and, and WPW is certainly something that is curable with catheter ablation. We have lots of data for many years that we can cure uh, SVT related to WPW as well as other potential adverse outcomes with WPW. So it's not a disease that one would think of, you know, dissuading women from having their own children. But letting women know again, they may have some increased symptoms during pregnancy. But in terms of their offspring, I wouldn't think of saying don't have children because you have WPW. In contrast, there are some other syndromes that are also you know transmitted more frequently to the fetus. Sometimes, so Brugada or even some forms of long QT syndrome or inherited, you know, autosomal dominant or even autosomal recessive in, in some situations. So we need to talk to the mother about that possibility and with each of the syndromes. There may be variable penetrance; Not all of their offspring may have severe disease. We know that it it may vary even with a given family. And there are therapies, right? We now have a lot more data out there and a lot more effective therapies. So just the awareness, I think, is a really important thing. But there are treatments for many of these syndromes. And now we even have genetic testing that's more widely available. Not everyone will have a gene that's been identified. But if the mother has the gene, we can test their offspring so that during their initial evaluations and subsequent. When follow up with their pediatricians or their cardiologists that may be following a pediatric cardiologist or electrophysiologist that may be following these children, this will allow early diagnosis and appropriate monitoring in those early years of life in the offspring. So these are all the things we need to think about. It's not an easy, don't do it, but it's something that we need to inform our patients. This is really a shared decision-making process. And I think the key here is that most of this now we have effective therapies and follow up with these therapies in mind is often available.
2: Thank you so much. I, you know, It sounds like one of the most important things here is really making sure that women and their families understand the competing risks there and that everyone, including the future offsprings, physicians are fully informed about what's happening and what needs to happen and follow up. So moving on to another case, also you needing some complex decision-making, this next patient is a 36-year-old woman who has obesity, essential hypertension, and paroxysmal atrial fibrillation. She has infrequent AFib episodes. She's on metoprolol for rate control. She is also hoping to become pregnant soon. We know that pregnancy confers a prothrombotic state. So can you offer any specific guidance regarding stroke prevention in patients who are pregnant or hoping to become pregnant with atrial fibrillation, particularly if they don't have any other stroke risk factors?
3: Yeah, that's a great question. So it's it's a difficult situation in pregnancy because, as you mentioned, there's a prothrombotic state and anticoagulation is considered in pregnant women who have atrial arrhythmias, particularly in the setting of structural heart disease. But it's somewhat controversial, but most of the sources recommend the same risk stratification schemes for pregnant women as in non-pregnant women. So we look at our practice guidelines in cardiology that look at a scoring system, and there's lots of different scoring systems, but the most common one used and the one recommended in our guidelines are the chads vast scoring system. So this accounts for other things like the presence of congestive heart failure, hypertension, age. So you get two points if you're 75 or more, obviously not in this situation. Diabetes, prior stroke, if you had a prior stroke or TIA, that gives you two points. Also, you account for the age of the patient in the mid-range. And again, you're not going to be 65 and having children in most situations. And the sex female, you get a point for that. So in this particular situation, I think the woman had a history of hypertension, so that gives one point there, and she's female, so that's two points. So based on our practice guidelines, oral anticoagulation is recommended if you have a chads VASc score or three or more in women. So it would not be essential in this case. This would be a patient, you have to weigh the risks and the, the potential benefits of anticoagulation. So this particular patient, I wouldn't recommend anticoagulation. Now, if she had another risk factor, you know, diabetes or other risk factors, you might consider but in this particular case, I would
1: not. Great. Thank you so much. For patients who do need anticoagulation, which agents do you typically recommend?
3: So typically we have always tried to avoid warfarin in pregnant patients due to you know, abnormalities related to the drug, teratogenic effects that can occur, particularly during the first trimester, skeletal problems, limb problems, CNS problems, or even fetal loss. So in those kinds of situations, you know, we think of low molecular weight heparin. Unfractionated heparin is another possibility if they're at high risk of thromboembolic events. Now, a lot of the patients that we are anticoagulating who are pregnant tend to be people with mechanical valves because that's more of an issue. But there's more depth to that discussion with mechanical valves. Although our center and our maternal-fetal medicine people aren't using warfarin in those situations, there is some data to say that lower dose warfarin might be safe during parts of pregnancy. But in this particular topic of atrial arrhythmias and atrial fibrillation, we wouldn't, you know, even. And consider that because of the potential adverse effects. So now in individuals who have atrial fibrillation who are not pregnant, our recommendations are usually for the direct oral anticoagulant. So things like apixaban, rivaroxaban, dabigatran, or, or doxaban over warfarin, but there's not really a lot of experience with these agents in pregnancy, So we're not recommending that typically. So if they need anticoagulation, the bottom line is we would consider uh, low molecular weight heparin and if they're at high risk of thromboembolic complications with atrial fibrillation fibrillation during pregnancy.
1: Yes, absolutely. Given the high stakes involved with anticoagulation in pregnancy, it's always good to review. Thank you. We did speak about the details of anticoagulation in pregnancy, focusing on mechanical valves in a separate episode with Dr. Berlacher, because it's not straightforward, as you kind of referenced. I think it's important too; reiterate how vital preconception counseling with these patients really is, because a lot of those side effects and teratogenic effects can happen within that first trimester when some people don't even know that they're pregnant yet. So really having this discussion up front and making patients aware before they try to conceive is important
2: gosh
4: guys we just got called for a rapid response they want a cardio ob team stat let's go see what's going on
2: well this patient is a 25 year old g2 p1 woman who is currently at 18 weeks of gestation she presented the emergency department with palpitations and just went into a regular narrow complex tachycardia at 160 beats per minute Dr. Russo, how does your approach to atrial arrhythmias change when you're dealing with pregnant patients?
3: Well, the initial treatment of SVT during pregnancy has some similarity to those who are not pregnant, but we don't want to leave them in SVT for a long period of time because that could drop their blood pressure. So we want to make sure that we rapidly treat it and decrease perfusion to the fetus is not something we want to have happen. So the initial treatment, though, is still vagal maneuvers. You know, carotid sinus massage, Valsalva can be tried. You have the patient lying down when these are being done. And if this is not effective, as we do in non-pregnant patients, we treat with intravenous adenosine. So we use that because it's short acting. The adverse effects of adenosine on the fetus are not likely. The drug has a very short half-life. And this is assuming, again, that our patient is remaining hemodynamically stable. But if they're not stable, and which can happen even with SVT, DC cardioversion, synchronized cardioversion has been performed and it can be safe at all stages of pregnancy. pregnancy in these situations. For patients who, you know, they're stable, you gave adenosine that didn't work, and you could try IV metoprolol, IV beta blocker, and sometimes that helps. And sort of a last line therapy is verapamil. But again, watching to see the effects of these drugs on blood pressure, because you don't want to make the mother hypotensive.
1: Oh, wow. Great. So there was a lot in there. So it's really important. What you're saying is we should have a high sense of urgency for these atrial arrhythmias in pregnancy because with the shortened diastolic filling time, there's less fetal perfusion. And you're also saying that both adenosine and cardioversion are safe for use within pregnancy, correct?
3: Yes. So definitely they're both safe. And then what we usually do would be to monitor the fetus during the cardioversion and immediately after cardioversion, but they are safe in pregnancy. And it's really, you want to treat it. And really, because these arrhythmias can lead to hypotension, which could cause a problem.
2: So what about our patient who now has had the acute situation managed? She now is a patient who has recurrent paroxysmal arrhythmias. Do you have any preference between chronic rhythm control and rate control in our pregnant population?
3: So, in the setting of atrial fibrillation, initially we're giving, you know, rate control. So you might use some intravenous drugs for rate control, like metoprolol or even propranolol, digoxin, or occasionally verapamil. But after the rates are controlled, you can try to convert atrial arrhythmias. I think you're referring to first, so atrial fibrillation or flutter. You can acutely try to terminate. But for the long term, you can consider either option. Most of these arrhythmias, fortunately, will terminate with acute treatment, and we more often Often we'll treat patients with rhythm control for a few reasons. I mean, we do it in non-pregnant patients as well because people don't feel really well in atrial arrhythmias and there's lots of drugs that we can potentially use. And the area that we're talking about in pregnant women, again, there's not a lot of randomized controlled trials looking at different drugs, but we do have certain drugs that have been around a while that we do have experience with retrospective studies that could tell us have we seen really bad things happen or not. But during pregnancy, if we leave them in their atrial arrhythmia, you know, they have an increased adrenergic state, and and even as they're getting sinus tachycardia, it may be difficult to just rate control these patients. So we do try to, at least I try to lean more towards rhythm control, certainly in these individuals. And you may have them on a beta blocker if it's regular SVT, a regular SVT that utilizes the AV node as part of the re circuit. You know, we treat with beta blockers, you maybe digoxin and less commonly verapamil, but you can use that also. But if it's an atrial arrhythmia, you need a drug that works directly on the atrial tissue, So drugs like sodalol, flecainide, or sometimes propofenone can be utilized in these situations to maintain sinus rhythm. The one situation where we want to be careful um, certainly is in patients who have Wolf-Parkinson-White syndrome. So they have the potential to have not just SVT in those patients, they can have the potential to have atrial fibrillation or atrial arrhythmias that conduct very rapidly down the accessory pathway. So certainly, particularly during acute treatment in those patients, we want to avoid AV nodal blocking drugs such as verapamil and digoxin in particular, because that can enhance conduction down the accessory pathway acute treatment in those patients. If they are certainly in atrial fibrillation with pre-excitation, the classic therapy would be intravenous procainamide.
1: Fantastic. Thank you, Dr. Russo. For long-term management, you mentioned some medications that were safe. Can you speak a little bit more about this and especially which medications are definitely off limits for use with pregnancy?
3: Yes, absolutely. That's really important is to show which ones we shouldn't use. In the long-term management of SVT, some of the same drugs like, so if it's a reentrant arrhythmia, utilizing the AV node, things like metoprolol, propranol, and digoxin are considered safe first-line treatment. Most of this is we have a long record of safety in these patients. Although, you know, beta blockers have been associated with intrauterine growth retardation, it's most pronounced with atenolol. So we really completely avoid atenolol. And there's other beta blockers, so it's not necessary to use that one. So in maintaining sinus rhythm, and we rarely need this for SVT, like AV node reentry, but if you have Wolf-Parkinson-White syndrome or you have atrial arrhythmias, we consider drugs like flecainide or propofenone or sotalol, then those are considered really safe and effective. The only thing to keep in mind, we wouldn't use, we're talking about the normal heart. So flecainide and propofenone should not be used in patients who have structural heart disease. So congenital heart disease, cardiomyopathies. we don't use those drugs due to potential for proarrhythmia. We usually start with the lowest doses of these drugs and and make dosage adjustments as needed. We don't have a lot of experience in pregnancy with dronedarone or defetilide, so tend not to use those drugs. But the one that we really try to avoid in terms of the membrane active drugs is amiodarone. And we really avoid this because of potential fetal problems that we know about, fetal thyroid problems and these neurodevelopmental problems. So in summary, really, we know to avoid atenolol and avoid amiodarone. Now, if it's a life threatening arrhythmia and the mother's in a severe, distressful situation, intravenous amiodarone could be used, you know, as an emergency situation, but that would be our last line.
4: I think this is a particularly important part of this conversation for the audience and for myself because you're faced with an acute arrhythmia, right? Your rhythm is different and it's acute. The syndrome comes rapidly and you have very few moments to react to it. And so I think having these almost rules is so useful. You know, we very quickly reach for amiodarone in so many different contexts. So I think if nothing else, people can take away, Hey, like I should not use amiodarone unless it's like absolutely life threatening. And even then think twice or thrice. So uh, that's very helpful. But what does this conversation look like for ventricular arrhythmias? What What is your typical first-line antiarrhythmic approach to acute ventricular arrhythmias, patients with chronic predispositions to ventricular arrhythmias? How do you handle that with regards to antiarrhythmic medicines?
3: Yeah. So just to point out again, if patients are hemodynamically unstable, electrical cardioversion, I think people have a fear of cardioverting the mother, but that has been shown to be safe to cardiovert if the patient's unstable. But if they're hemodynamically, you know, tolerating the arrhythmia and you think it's ventricular tachycardia, intravenous lidocaine is first line and can be tried intravenous procainamide, again, is an option. Just be careful not to administer it too rapidly. You don't want to cause hypotension. We used to use intravenous quinidine. I don't even sure if it's available as much anymore, but really first line lidocaine, second line procainamide there, if lidocaine's not effective. And again, we try to avoid amiodarone except in the very extreme situation, life-threatening situations when everything else fails, or if you cardiovert and then they go right back into the tachycardia. Again, we have to think of it in those situations, but otherwise we, would not use it, as you mentioned, that people jump into using amiodarone frontline, and we would not do that in this situation.
1: So we spoke earlier about the role of catheter ablation prior to conception. What about patients with incessant tachyarrhythmias during pregnancy? Is it ever the right idea to perform catheter ablation during pregnancy? Are there any special considerations for these cases?
3: Well, the one concern would be radiation exposure to the fetus. Now, catheter ablation is rarely necessary, I must say, during pregnancy, except if patients have really refractory arrhythmias that just can't be controlled with medication. And SVT has certainly been successfully ablated during pregnancy. Lots of reports with that. And now that we have low fluoro or even zero fluoro procedures, we have what's called electroanatomic mapping, so we can actually see our catheters in the heart without putting on uh, our foot. On the pedal to get fluoroscopy. Having said that, there's really much less experience with VT ablation during pregnancy, but fortunately, these are really rarely needed, these kind of treatments. And fortunately, drugs usually do work. You may have to you know, adjust doses to control arrhythmias, but most of the time, but if you need to go to ablation, particularly for SVT, you can use low fluoro or zero fluoro with minimal exposure to the fetus.
4: I I just uh, have a quick comment. You know, for our listeners, you'll only get the audio version, not the video version. But I just have to say that I'm noticing the biggest smile on Kelly Arps when Dr. Rousseau is talking about catheter ablation techniques. I don't know if you caught that, Dr. Rousseau. Mm
2: -hmm. (laughs) I'm looking forward to getting into the EP lab.
3: Yes, yes. It's so much fun. You're going to have a great time.
2: (laughs) Absolutely. Thank you so much for sharing that information and experience about how we can safely get our patients even through big procedures like catheter ablations. I do have some follow-up about the patient we were talking about earlier. She received adenosine to be converted into sinus rhythm. She was started on metoprolol for suppression of her arrhythmia. The team understood the same thing you did about choosing the appropriate beta blocker and avoiding atenolol due to the adverse effects on the fetus. Well, we're consulted again once she's ready for discharge from the obstetrics unit. She is hoping to breastfeed, and the team is asking what antiarrhythmic medications are considered safe for use in breastfeeding.
3: Yeah, so often we're considering some of the same medications. So beta blockers, we do think of intrauterine growth retardation, but now she's already in fetal bradycardia potentially, and we're using metoprolol and propranolol during pregnancy and avoiding atenolol. So it's important to allow women to breastfeed. And although these medications can certainly pass through breast milk, you know, we can you know, still consider using digoxin or, or the beta blockers that we talked about, metoprolol or propranolol. So it's using with caution and following, but it's not contraindicated. Uh, Again, we would avoid amiodarone if there are other arrhythmias. We would definitely not want to have the mother on amiodarone because there is a high rate of excretion in the breast milk.
4: All right. Well, I'm so glad that our patient and her baby are doing well. Now let's go back to our clinic. Our next patient is a 28-year-old woman with familial long QT syndrome, type 2. And we touched on this a little bit earlier. She's now 24 weeks pregnant with her first baby. What is the risk of malignant arrhythmias in the peripartum period in patients who have these genetic arrhythmia syndromes?
3: Well, patients with congenital long QT syndrome in general are at risk of ventricular arrhythmias, you know, and some of that risk is improved with treating with a beta blocker. So, you are during pregnancy, it's probably surprisingly less of an issue, but there's clearly an increased risk in the postpartum period. And we're thinking, well, they got through their pregnancy, we're all done. But really, we don't completely know why that is, but there's certainly a decrease in heart rate and bradycardia can promote long QT-related arrhythmias. You know, there's more stress. You know, the mother's probably not sleeping much and doing a lot for the baby. So that may be some of the reason. But I think the really important thing to remember is that we have to continue beta blockers throughout this period. That is clearly associated. And this is one of the things we clearly have some data on with a reduction in the risk of these cardiac events postpartum. So continue beta blockers throughout the period of time during pregnancy and postpartum. Don't stop them postpartum. And people may think of that, well, I'm going to be breastfeeding. I don't want to be on a drug. But really key to continue these drugs postpartum. You can use propranolol or or metoprolol.
1: That's so interesting. We've been hearing throughout the series that a lot of complications are at high risk of occurrence in the early postpartum period, including aortopathies, peripartum cardiomyopathy, hypertensive disorders of pregnancy, and SCAD. So it's a really important point to keep in mind. Just because the patient's delivered doesn't mean she's in the clear. So Dr. Russo, I worry about patients with ARVC or CPVT, classically triggered by a sympathetic drive. Are these patients at increased risk of adverse events during delivery?
3: Yeah. So arrhythmias in these syndromes, we know in the non-pregnant patient for sure can be increased with increased periods of adrenergic state, like things like exercise in particular. So it certainly seemed plausible that arrhythmias can be increased during pregnancy also, because that certainly is increased in adrenergic tone there. So these arrhythmia syndromes are less common. So we have less experience, although there's some experience. And again, still in the form, not randomized studies in any way, but just, you know, more case reports, case series reviews, retrospective reviews. So arrhythmogenic right ventricular cardiomyopathy or RV cardiomyopathy sometimes referred to, it's a genetic problem where you get this fibro fatty replacement of the myocardium. And so you can get arrhythmias during pregnancy and that's this has been reported, but there's not a complete consensus on how we manage these patients. Now, we have that diagnosis before pregnancy and patients have symptomatic arrhythmias and, and these patients may already have ICDs in place. For the catecholaminergic polymorphic VT, again, those arrhythmias can be increased with increased adrenergic tone. And actually the European guidelines actually specifically state they recommend beta blockers continued during pregnancy and postpartum, like long QT, continue these drugs postpartum. So, and there was one recent study looking again, retrospective, the patients didn't seem to have much increase in cardiac events during pregnancy. But again, typically we're continuing these drugs through pregnancy and postpartum.
2: Well, that's been a great day so far. Let's go and join the EP Happy Hour.
4: Oh no, guys, I think that's in the Minna Walsh Maternity Ward. Let's go check it out.
1: Yikes. It's a 26-year-old woman who's 30 weeks pregnant who suffered witnessed in-hospital cardiac arrests. The nurses are actively doing chest compressions in the second minute of resuscitation. Dr. Russo, quick, what are some takeaway points from the updated ACLS algorithm for pregnant patients?
3: Yeah, fortunately we don't see this situation too often, but you know, as in non-pregnant patients, we want to make sure that we're giving high quality chest compressions and we defibrillate when defibrillation is indicated. So we want to have our teams both present, right? The maternal team and the intervention team, the cardiologists, as well as the obstetrics people present during the resuscitation. And if, if there has been fetal monitoring you know, during this period of time, you want to remove those monitors. You want to be able to open up the space in case you need an emergency C-section, which can rarely be needed, certainly within. Usually the period of time was in four minutes or so after. If there's no return of spontaneous circulation, you want to have that access available now, one thing to think about in, in the mother is sometimes these patients are more difficult to intubate. You, know, There may be some edema. Part of these things that happen during pregnancy may affect that airway. ACLS drugs, it's still recommended in the doses and in the indications as per the ACLS guidelines for adults who have a cardiac arrest typical CPR as you would normally do in terms of frequency of compressions and depth of compression and don't delay defibrillation and the breast may be larger but make sure you have your patch certainly the lateral patch underneath the breast tissue so don't modify the protocols but the one thing that's very different in pregnant patients and depending on how many weeks pregnant they are if their uterus is above the umbilicus you can really be at risk of the cable compression that can further impede venous return to the heart resulting in hypotension and and when they're lying flat, and that can impact on these resuscitative measures. So what you can do is, you know, putting the patient either in a kind of a lateral tilt position or by really manually displacing the uterus to the left. So this left lateral uterine displacement can be really important to relieve this compression. We have the our anesthesiologists are you know well aware they might need to use a smaller endotracheal tube. And then if things aren't going well and the mother is not quickly resuscitated, one of the key things, not just to help the fetus, but also to help the mother with the resuscitative efforts is to get the baby out. So what they would call a peribortem C-section delivery. And that might also help with the resuscitation of the mother when you relieve that pressure on the IVC.
4: Yeah, you know, just agree with you. Thankfully, we don't see this too often on Cardieners. We saw this once in the past, so I would refer the audience to episode sixty-one, where our colleagues from the Medical College of Wisconsin brought us a patient who suffered a cardiac arrest during pregnancy, found to have peripartum cardiomyopathy as the etiology. And thankfully, after really valiant care by the whole group and the team over there, she and her baby did well. But you know, we go into an in-depth discussion about management of cardiac arrest, cardiogenic shock, VA ECMO, and all related considerations with regards to peripartum cardiomyopathy in that episode.
1: Wow. So as you said, Dr. Russo, these events are quite rare, but it's important we know the unique features of ACLS for pregnant patients for both the health of the mom and baby. So we need to be mindful of compression of the IVC, limiting v- venous return to the heart, and also of the potential for an edematous airway. And importantly, we should be getting the OB and neonatal teams to bedside STAT in preparation for a potential delivery. Thank you so much for clarifying all of that. Well, Dr. Russo, I've really learned a lot through this conversation that we've had, and you were grateful
2: and honored to have had this time to chat with you. As a leader in the field of EP, your career is really an inspiration for many of us. Women constitute about 43% of internal medicine residents, 22% of general cardiology fellows, and less than 15% of EP fellows. As the past president of HRS, how would you advise female trainees or any trainees really who are considering a career in electrophysiology?
3: Yeah, so the pipeline in EP is still not anywhere near what we want. And I'm really thrilled, Kelly, that you're in that pipeline here now. EP is a great field for women, but we need to get that word out better. I think. There may be, you know, multiple factors involved. And one of our biggest challenges is that we have to get more role models out there. We have to get more women so women can see that other women work in the field and are successful in the field. You know, people like to see in any underrepresented group in whatever field you're in, people like to see someone who looks like them, a role model that you can relate to and, and see that you could be successful in that role and that you can advance the field and you have that opportunity. So you could still have a career. You could still have a family. People do it at different stages. I started later to having a family, but some people do it very early. There's no right or wrong, but there are definitely different ways to do this and you need to feel very welcome and supported in your work. And so I think part of that is that we need to have more women in general in cardiology and in EP in leadership positions that can help mentor, support women, sponsor women throughout their career, give them opportunities to excel. And in the past, I think people used to say, oh, we were worried about radiation exposure and that was the deterrent. But you know, I'm not so sure that was the only deterrent then, but now it's certainly not now that we have these low fluoro or zero fluoro ablation procedures that are safe not just for the pregnant patient, but are safe for the operators in in that regard. So I certainly think I'm biased, obviously, but EP has so much to offer women as well as men. I think it's intellectually challenging and men and women go into the field for that reason. There's lots of new innovations and advancements. I mean, there's always something new to learn and this really opportunity for continued lifelong learning is a clear benefit of EP. So we just need to get the word out better. And and I think doing programs like this are, are going to help. And I thank you for that.
4: That was amazing, Dr. Russo. Thank you so much. And you know, there's certainly this, what we call residency to fellowship cliff, right? When it comes to women and URMs, you know, kind of entering the, the doorway, the pathway into cardiology, but there's also this unacceptable fellowship to super fellowship cliff, both for electrophysiology, interventional cardiology, and the other procedural subspecialties. And so we on CardioNerds, uh, this is such an important part of our mission And we want to show people that, you know, while there's work to be done, cardiology is an amazing field. It is inclusive. There's a lot of opportunity and, you know, you just have to seek it out. And we have people like yourself who are making it such an inviting career. So that's why we've launched this narratives and cardiology series to have these discussions and really improve our field for everyone, patients, research, everyone included. But Dr. Russo, before we let you go, we have one final question for you. What makes your heart flutter about cardio obstetrics and arrhythmia management and sex differences in arrhythmia?
3: Yeah, I think for me, it's the challenge of doing something meaningful, something you feel you can make an impact on, something you can do to help patients, to help women. And, and really just the excitement of arrhythmias, the mechanisms the and the passion just for the field. We can really help people. We can make a difference in their lives. And in particularly in the case of cardio obstetrics, not just the life of the, the individual, but the life of the family. So I, I thank you for this opportunity so much. Thank you.
1: Well, I've certainly learned quite a bit today. Dr. Russo, thank you so much for such an amazing discussion and for imparting so much knowledge. We so appreciate your time and leadership in this area. Kelly, thank you for guiding our conversation and providing such great discussion topics today. I'm confident many in our audience will reference this discussion anytime they come across women with arrhythmias in pregnancy, which is something we will all come across and is so clinically important. So thanks everyone for joining. And thank you so much.
2: Thank you for inviting us.
5: Thanks for tuning in to the Cardio Nerds Cardio Obstetrics series led by co-chairs and fellows in training, Drs. Natalie Stokes and Sonia Shah, and brought to you in collaboration with Women Heart, the National Coalition for Women with Heart Disease. This is Dr. Sharon Hayes. I'm a non-invasive cardiologist at Mayo Clinic, where I founded and maintain an active practice in the Mayo Clinic Women's Heart Clinic. I've also been privileged to serve as a mentor and advisor to Cardio Nerds. With our partner, WomenHeart, I have served as a patient advocate and an advisor for well over 20 years. What is WomenHeart? It was founded by and for women. Women WomenHeart focuses on serving the millions of women living with or at risk of heart disease, the leading cause of death in women. Women WomenHeart is dedicated to advancing women's heart health through advocacy, community education, and supports the nation's only patient support network for women living with heart disease. As medical director of WomenHeart's Science and Leadership Symposium for Women with Heart Disease... Each year, I have the privilege of working with Women Heart to train a new class of women living with heart disease from across the country to become community educators and support group leaders. Since 2002, Women Heart has trained over 1,000 Women Heart champions. Women Heart's Scientific Advisory Council is comprised of renowned cardiologists, including many on this program, and offers membership in its National Hospital Alliance, a group of hospitals committed to providing gender-sensitive cardiology care and amplifying the patient voice in their care and treatment. This series is important to me personally since my clinical and research interests include sex and gender based cardiology, spontaneous coronary artery dissection or SCAD, health equity, and also increasing the participation of women and minoritized people in medical research. Through this lens, I know both how important and also how underemphasized cardio obstetrics has been. Cardiology has been late to own Cardio OB as a concept and important sub subspecialty for us as cardiologists and for the women under our care. This series aims to change that. Why? Because cardiovascular disease is the number one cause of maternal mortality. For instance, in my own area of interest, SCAD, it may be considered rare, but it is the number one cause of pregnancy-associated myocardial infarction. Second, even if we only utilized what we know now, if that knowledge was truly and fully translated to practice, most cardiovascular disease and its complications related to pregnancy would be detected better managed, and often prevented. Third, we have a huge knowledge gap. Women have not been included in medical research, much less reproductive and pregnant women. So the evidence we have to diagnose and treat and predict outcomes is often weak or even absent. And if we think we have insufficient data for women as a whole, there is truly a chasm to cross for as evidence to optimally care for women of color, particularly African-American women whose maternal mortality is two to four times higher than that of white women. So some of you might be thinking, I already am, or I plan to be a cardiologist. I will not be delivering babies, so why should I, as a true cardio nerd, pay attention to or even care about this topic? Well, I'm just going to stop you there. Half the population is women. The vast majority of women in our society become mothers at some point in their life, and presumably, all of you had one. As a physician and cardiologist, even if you do not see pregnant patients in your practice, the role of pregnancy in predicting women's future risk of cardiovascular disease is a critical fund of knowledge that is rapidly evolving. You will need it. And as the science builds, specific to Cardio B. More attention will be paid to cardiovascular risk management in the preconception phase, especially among women with known heart disease, and as a cardiologist, you will be called upon to address complications that occur during pregnancy and increasingly to be asked to assess and proactively reduce long-term cardiovascular risk after pregnancy. Our goal for this series? Raise awareness about the intersection between pregnancy and cardiovascular issues and improve your comfort around caring for women who have had or are at risk for cardio OB problems. You do not have to be an expert to know how and when to engage the Cardio OB heart team. All you cardio need to pay attention. And as you take advantage of the medical expertise of the participants in this series, I hope you will also take advantage of the expertise that your patients can provide you, either individually or through Women Heart's trained patient advocates, its champions. I have learned much and have often been humbled by the knowledge, advocacy, bravery, and persistence of women with heart disease and women heart champions and many of my patients be open to those insights and learning to learn more about women heart and how it can support your women patients or to help you do so or to offer to volunteer or donate go to womenheart.org thank you and enjoy the cardio ob series Beep. Beep.